we're just floating here. We're not even like <laughs> landing on your earth. We're just floating, not touching you. <laughs> hey there, I'm Jordan. And I'm Nick. We're just two regular guys who love talking about film. And now we'd like to talk to you. We decided to break down our discussions into three parts. Because everyone loves a gimmick. We discuss our expectations for a film before we watch it. That's take one. We give our immediate thoughts following the film. That's take two. And finally, we research the film at length to prepare for an informed and in-depth discussion. And that's take three. So if you love film even half as much as we do, join in on the conversation. This is take three, a movie podcast. Take one. Okay, happy 2020 to you, Jordan. Happy 2020 to you, Nicholas. Sorry, I'm trying to figure out my windows. There you are. Okay. Okay. We're very fresh into the new year. We're getting back in the swing of things. What? What do you want me to say? I don't know. Nothing. No. So, okay, two things. Um, one, you said swing of things. Swing of things. And it reminded me of um, a finger thing. Yeah. <laughs> no one knows what that is, but it's still funny. I should tell me. them. <laughs> you should. Okay, so I have a cousin, and uh, when he made this mistake, it was he's still like, he had to at least be like 18 or 19. It's not <laughs> like he was a child when this happened. We were on a roller coaster. It's It was like a, a German-themed roller coaster at this park called Busch Gardens. So some of you guys might know this, but... Yeah, if anyone frequents Busch Gardens, they know exactly what roller coaster yeah. they're talking about and probably already know the joke by now. <laughs> <laughs> it's verboten. Uh, yeah, and uh, the the lady or, or like the the recording, like while you're waiting says, in line. Yeah, she's like, "Have a good day at Bush Gardens." A finger sing. Or, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I, I don't. Uh, okay, she says "Auf Wiedersehen," which means yeah. "Until I see you again" in German. But uh, my cousin, who was like 19, kept hearing it, and he didn't know what the fuck she was saying. So he was just like, "A finger sing," and. <laughs> I mean, that's like, it's it's stupid to tell, but it's the funniest shit in the entire it world. Like, it is very funny. I thought I was going to burst into flames laughing so hard. <laughs> well, like, it's it's funny to me because we used to go to Busch Gardens every year, and that was, like, one of the coolest roller coasters in the park. Mm-hmm. And because it's the coolest, the line is always so long. Yeah. So you're always stuck in that line listening to that woman see off these people in these cars. Um She's like, I hope you enjoy, enjoy your stay here at Bush Gardens. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, I feel like everyone who frequents Bush Gardens knows those lines by heart. And the fact that, like, I knew exactly what you were talking about when you told it to me for the first time. It was like, oh, yeah, a finger sing. Yeah. I get it. I get He's it. He's a mess. So now I that we're back I don't think into... James listens to this podcast, but if you are listening, James, a finger sing. A finger sing. <laughs> My second thing was... uh Oh, you have a, okay, you have another point. I was just saying, I was going to say how excited I was to jump back into this because I, it has been a long time since we've recorded and, um, but then I remember like starting it is always my least favorite part because I never know how to introduce an episode without making like corny jokes or like, Hey, what's up you guys? Kind of, you know what I mean? You know, I hate that, but, um, I totally understand what you mean. So arrival. Yeah. (laughs) This movie, when I, we talked about it before, just because I think it's shown up on um, our best of the year lists, and it's mm-hmm. both of our one of our favorite movies. Maybe not top five, but like I would say, at least in the top uh, ten, maybe 
certainly for me, maybe not for you, but, um, yeah, I'd say top 10. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's, fair. It's just awesome. I, I saw it with you in theaters and, um, it like takes your breath away, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the, the ending of this fucking movie. I, I really hope everybody has seen it by the time we are talking about it. Cause we're going to spoil it. But the ending of this damn movie, man, is just oh so God, yeah. good and so brilliant and so mm-hmm. like not what you would expect from an alien invasion movie. Like it's an alien invasion movie that almost has like it has zero action. It's like all about uh, you know intellect and understanding and connection. Yeah, yeah, like, definitely. And talking about like time and how everyone relates to each other and how you relate to your future and past self and to the universe. I mean, it's, it's wicked. It is, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that this is as fun of a discussion as interstellar was. I always look back on interstellar fondly, even though (laughs) I've probably said this a bunch too. We didn't know what the fuck we were doing at the beginning of this shit. Episode four though, I feel like was dope. I'm afraid to listen to it because I'm afraid it's not dope, but I think it was. Can I tell you, I, this is going to sound very self-indulgent and maybe selfish and maybe arrogant, but I promise you it's not. I listen to our episodes all the time. Really? I have to, I have to reassure myself that we did a good job. Oh, cool. Well, good. Do we? I think so. I I can't listen to myself, so I don't ever listen to our episodes. I'm just like, I edit it and I let go and let God. I don't, I can't. (laughs) I can't if you if, if someone messages me and like saying, hey, you messed up here after the episode's published, like don't care. It's y'all's problem now. Sorry. Like I, something's wrong. I You know, nope. I can't I can't listen to it again. I do not like hearing my voice and editing a lot of these, man. It, it's hard. But once I finish editing it, uh, goodbye. <laughs> but I'm glad I'm glad that you like it. And you are um, you are our content uh, checker you can make sure that. You know, we can still be proud of it. On my way home, I was listening to inter- to uh, Annihilation. Actually, our episode on Annihilation. It, it makes me happy that you that you enjoy listening to our conversations over again. Mm-hmm. I've and listened I, to the our lobster episode like a million times. Really, but it's not like and again, it's not like oh, well, that's self indulgent because that's like ninety nine percent you. You're just like listening, like looking at yourself in the mirror. No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's not. Jordan's a narcissist, everybody. It's not self-indulgent because it's it's more like, God, like, did I do a good job? Like, did I, yeah. did I really, like, was it good? I just don't know. And then I listen to it just to make sure that, like, it's still at least passing. Like, it doesn't no, have to be. I, I definitely know. think that that was good. I have still, I admittedly, not seen The Lobster. And it's <laughs> almost like I don't feel like I need to, like. I just feel like I, you, you did such Thank a you. great job doing Thank uh, you. what we explain movies does, and they did such a good job doing what we do. I feel like I have the whole picture. <laughs> anyway. You should still see it though, because you I need will. to see you need to see uh, like Olivia Coleman's performance. You need yeah. to see John C. Riley's performance. You need to see Heartless's performance, and it's 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 great. It's really and Nosebleed's performance. Like I will eventually see it for yeah. sure. But Denny Villeneuve. Yeah. What else has he done? Oh, um, you remember Prisoners? That movie with um, with Hugh Jackman and I think his kid gets um taken or one of their kids gets taken. <gasps> yes, actually. Yeah, I do remember that. I, I was like, I don't want to say anything. Like the things I remember are about the very end of that movie, and I'm like, can't say that because I don't want to spoil the movie we're not talking about. But 
Jake Gyllenhaal's in that movie, I think. Is he? I think it's Jake Gyllenhaal and, and Hugh Jackman, right? I, I honestly, it's been so long since I've seen that. Again, this is a, a hub for misinformation, so I don't really <laughs> give a shit. But let me look it up just for my own, not for you guys, but just for me. There he is. Yes, he is. Oh, shit. And so is Violet Davis. What? Why the hell don't I remember Violet Davis in that movie? Violet Davis is like one of my favorite actresses. What the hell? I don't remember. We should watch that, that again. We should do that one, too. I love Denny Villeneuve's movies. He did freaking, um, oh my God. It's like, I love him, and then I can't remember what he fucking directed. What is a movie with Emily Blunt? And they're like, they're like, uh, it's not in Sicario. the cartel. It is Sicario. Yes, is he directed Sicario. Sicario. Yeah. He directed Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049. He's directing Which I still Dune. Have not seen yet. I've not seen that either. Damn it. Um, <laughs> Wait, did Dune come out already? No. Uh uh-uh. uh. It's in the works. Yeah, so I think it comes out this year. I know that's going to be like a big deal because Dune is, I feel like Dune's a very cult classic story yeah i think i think it will do well i'm I'm hoping it does better than blade runner 2048 i hear people say like i've heard the argument come up for blade runner 2048 that like because a lot of people hadn't seen blade runner and you know that that's like an you know an add-on to it yeah uh, it was marketed as you know a sequel to blade runner people were like i'm not going to go watch blade runner and then blade runner 2048 it's 2049 (laughs) oh is it what is 2048 (gasps) Oh my god, I said that so many times. And you know what 2048 is? It's that game on where you where you have to add two and two and then you have to add you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, four and four, and you have like the four by four grid. Yeah. Yes, I do. Like two times two times two times two times two times two times two or however many twos it is is twenty forty eight and you have to Y'all look up the two zero four eight. That'll that'll make you feel really stupid and then when you figure out how to do it and It'll make you feel really smart. I have never, I like posted that shit on Facebook when I figured that game out. I feel like everyone did that. That game was a big hit when it first came out. But yeah, um, you're right. Yes. It's 2049. You're totally right. That's all I've seen that he's done though is um, Prisoners, uh, Arrival, Sicario. I saw Sicario too. I don't remember a damn thing about we that. We watched movie it that, together. I know, except that. Oh, that was the movie where. Um, I was like, I would never want this job because they're in the desert in like a million pound suits. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And they're also pulling dead bodies out of the wall, but um, yeah. not that part. That's, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> Just because it's hot. <laughs> that's me. Yeah. Anyway, I love this movie. Um, I know it's based off of a short story. Um, and I actually do have the book that has the short story in it. And I very well might read it before you haven't read that yet? I for some reason thought you had. No, I haven't read it yet. How I don't plan on reading the whole book, but um, what would you say? How long is it? Do you have any idea? Uh, I'd guess like maybe 300 pages. It's not like enormous, but it's oh, a solid. Oh, like the short story is 300 pages? Oh, I don't know about the short story. I know the book as a whole is maybe like 300 pages. I was going to be like, if like if it's a short story, I'll read that shit too, but I can't, I'm not going to commit to reading 300 pages in no. however many days in between this stuff. But you've done that shit before. You're like, I might read this whole book really quick. No. Oh yeah. I feel like I've done that a, a lot, yeah, a lot, yeah. a lot. And do I never, no, <laughs> never, not once, <laughs> never, 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 but um, that's okay. It doesn't matter. This will be one I get emotional over again because this movie is so powerful. I've seen it a bunch of times just because I tried to show as many people as I could 
because it's such a great movie. You'd think it would be boring, but it's so not. Like, because if you just lay out, like, what they actually are doing, like, yeah. oh, there's these aliens come, but they just have to learn a language. And, and then they're they trying to teach and... them, like, linguistics. I'm like, yeah. okay. <laughs> they go up inside the ship and they yeah. visit and they come down and they analyze. And then they yeah. go back up in the ship and then they come back down. And then yeah. they go back up in the ship. It's yeah, not no. even scary. Like, I guess maybe Abbott and Costello are kind of scary looking, but, like, they're not. No, you grow to love them. Before you even know whether they're good or bad, like, they, you, they're just amazing and beautiful in my totally, opinion. Totally, totally. Um, I would get one of those, one of their little letters tattooed on me. Oh, absolutely. I, lo- I love this movie that much. That language is really dope looking, too. That would be interesting to find out if, like, maybe behind the scenes, if there really was, like, some kind of language or um what's the word i should know this i'm a graphic designer um like i don't want to say font but like like if there was actually what is the word like marks like um letters or an alphabet or it like establish rules that would work yes. if you were to to look for yes. other symbols and rules and things like that well you know right. it makes me think that they probably do just because this movie is so much about that yeah that it would it would make it would make almost practical sense for them to be like okay we just have to admit a language you know what i mean um like, we have to admit a language like, first and then we have to tell the story with it you know yeah i suppose well no I'm like i'm up. saying you're right you seem defeated is it no, because I you just, couldn't think of the word no <laughs> yes i will be doing research into that well good yeah you should for sure yes i have severely underwatched this movie i feel like i saw it like maybe twice in theaters and that's probably it Man, and man. so you haven't seen this in a while. That's exciting. Yeah, it has been a long while. I mean, I obviously know the main story beats, but um, yeah, but I am excited to watch it again. I feel like it deserves a million watches, but it really is just it's like a special movie. And I hope that it finds I mean, I think it did well. I think I remember uh, and I'll talk more about this later, but I do remember being like, oh, wow, this movie is actually making a decent amount of money. But I really do hope that it continues to find an audience because like there's a possibility that people might be let down by the fact that there is not an action movie. I guess you're right. So, and that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. I'm just saying like, I can understand how people would be like, what the fuck is this? You know, we're talking, it's just language the whole time. Whereas I guess, you know, again, it's, it was one of my favorite movies uh, before Marvel released its last couple, but um, it was (laughs) one of my top five. Yeah, no, I do. I do remember that. Yeah. I just think to me it feels so small-minded to go into a movie and then leave disappointed because there was no action. That seems weird to me. I don't think it's the right way to go, but I can understand you having somewhat preconceived notions because of a genre or a filmmaker. Yeah, Not necessarily this filmmaker, but like because of a filmmaker, you can come to expect, oh, there's going to be this and this and this. And some people really only care about going to see movies on the big screen because of the spectacle action. and the action and that kind of stuff. And because this movie is not short on spectacle, it's no absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it is stunning. And just even the, the image of the ship in that field is crazy. Yeah. Um, but, and I can, it's funny cause I can hear that scene too. Mm-hmm. The, the, I'm not even going to do it, but anyone who knows what I'm talking about, yeah. knows what I'm talking about, I guess. Oh, I will a great definitely soundtrack. do it then. <laughs> do it, do it. No, 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 no,
Yeah. Is he passed away, but he did the score for this movie and it is earth shatteringly good. It is. And yeah. so weird and so ridiculous and like would only work for a movie that is about aliens teaching us a language. Mm-hmm. And it's <laughs> it's so good. And I mean, yeah. this man will live forever in, in my heart for this freaking score. I absolutely love it. Same. We have a game that we play. I have like a Spotify playlist that I made him, that I made Jordan. And um, it has like all of these movie scores on it, right? And there are, God, there's probably like a hundred or so now, maybe more than that, I don't even know. But what we'll do is like if we're in the car on like a car, a long car ride or something, I'll hook up to his radio and like just play a random score. And he has like, as soon as he possibly can, to tell me what the song is or tell you what movie it's from yeah he's like really good at it and sometimes if he's struggling uh there sometimes like because like normally you you knock it out of the park to the point where it's like sickening i don't understand <laughs> how you're able to do that he's, he is really impressive but then sometimes when you struggle i'll play that when i'm like okay let's make it feel better like i can play the no 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 you know what i'm talking about Yes, I do. Fucking love that song. <laughs> it really is just somebody going. Nah, 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 nah. I'm excited to discover it again. I really yeah, I am. can't wait. Let's let's watch this damn thing. So this um... before before we do though, okay. I just want to. We had just gotten off the holidays, and um, I don't know if when the last. Well, I guess the last episode was Home Alone, wasn't uh-huh. it? I don't know if we wished anyone a Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays or Happy New Year. Um, but I do want no, to. No, the last episode for... wasn't Home Alone. The last episode was our was our quick. Oh, game. the wrap up. Yeah, the wrap up. Yeah. But I, I don't Re- even remember if we did it there. <laughs> Regardless, I hope everyone uh, had a good holiday. I don't know when this is going to be released. It might be like months from now. But, um, but still, uh, and I wanted to thank you because you did something very very special on Christmas. It absolutely made my whole year. Um, you reached out to our aunts and you reached out to Sarah from, uh, the circle opens and you got them both to wish me a Merry Christmas. And it is something I cherish and treasure and listen to often. Thank you. The four of you, the five of you actually for doing that for me. That was so incredibly sweet. Thank you for making this so much fun to do. I, I cannot tell you how much that means to me. I'm glad you liked it. I was telling Sarah and Courtney, Kayleen and Kimmy, he's always like, you know, don't spend a lot of money and don't spend a lot of effort, you know, and like, don't worry about me for Christmas. And I'm like, I always ignore him, but I was like, y'all can just do it all this time. <laughs> I mean, I got you other stuff, but like, I was like, he's going to freaking love this. And I just had to put it all together. It was, it was so surreal. Like yeah. I, it, it literally, I did not. So I just dream. sent like, I, I recorded uh, a little message from me just saying, you know, Merry Christmas or whatever. And I was like, uh, I normally would send you a video or something like that if I was going to reach out and send you something. But I was like, there's a reason why this is audio <laughs> and let, you know, just keep listening. It'll make more sense. And then they, their messages play, but I just sent it to you like out of nowhere. I was like, uh, are you, um, are you busy right now can, on Christmas <laughs> day? Like, can I, um, can I send you something for five minutes? <laughs> Yeah, it was. I think I was doing laundry at the time, and I just stopped, and I was just leaning over my washer and dryer, and I was just like, "This is happening. Uh, this is actually, this is real." It was so cool. It was I'm so glad. Cool. So I'm thank- glad I meant a lot to you. I figured yeah. that it it, it would uh, be very special for you because I know how much you enjoy both of um, our podcast family podcasts. Yes. 
Absolutely. All four of them are, are fantastic people, and I really appreciate y'all's help on that. <laughs> I know yeah. I've said that a bunch, but I really do appreciate their help. But uh, yes, so Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. Happy Take One. Glad to be back. Let's do this. I am sweaty. It is so All right, hot let's, in here. Let's, let's take a break. <laughs> okay. Take two. I forgot how much I love that movie. Yeah. You know what? This movie actually, I mean, I've seen it a couple of times. This is the probably the bleakest of my viewings. And it's because I was trying to watch a little bit more critically. And like this movie clearly is just telling us like, hey, y'all are not ready if something like this ever happened. It makes this movie timeless because I feel like it does have relevance today. Yeah. Uh, with people and nations working together and how I don't in a million years believe that at this moment we could ever do that. Yeah. Damn, like what a study on humanity and what it means to be human. It offers a lot of commentary on how we relate to each other, mm -hmm. but I also like how it becomes as the movie progresses and you understand it more, uh, a commentary about how we relate to ourselves, past and present. The question that gets asked at the end when she says, you know, if you could see your whole life play out, and I'm paraphrasing, like, would you change anything? If you knew exactly what would happen the rest of your life, would you change anything? Mm -hmm. His answer, I don't know. I mean, I feel like that's the ideal answer is to, you know, to be more open, say exactly what you feel because, you know, I don't know what my answer would be. I think I would be, I guess it depends on how my life played out. You know what I mean? I would be reluctant to want to to not change things that I saw were bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's scary. I think that's the thing is that, like, I don't know – it's it's hard to to give any kind of seriousness or credit to his answer because he doesn't really have the context yeah. that she has but i think his answer influenced her decision to tell him about exactly his daughter's illness which god the the way the things that i missed the first few times that i watched this movie is, is, is astounding to me and how everything comes full circle as it should, because it's like the point of the whole movie. And I, I wrote some things down and there are like things that I just completely did not pick up on the first couple times. I didn't realize that, uh, was it Abbott or Costello that died? Uh, I think Abbott died. Yeah. So I think, cause the way that the, the way that what you said, Abbott died, I'm pretty sure. The way he said Abbott is death process, which means yeah, the yeah. way he said it was uh, Abbott is death process, and I was like, I don't, I don't think I understood what that meant. I was like, and then this viewing, I was like, oh my god, that like he died, that's why he's not there, and it's like it makes it so much more up. sad. I know, I know, but I have so much I want to say, but I just I don't know where to start. Okay, keep going. What other things did you write down? So I'll start with the negatives so that we can end on the positive. I think the only thing that I didn't like about this movie was the CGI in it. Uh, I think if you weren't looking, you could probably not notice that the hazmat suits when they first enter the um, enter the the pods that those are CGI. I don't know if you caught that or not. I feel like you very often note things are CGI, and I don't at all. So I think you're either like hyper skeptical, or I am like the opposite, and I just don't <laughs> even pay attention to well, it. 
So that's a minor case because I think there's just a little bit of uncanny valley there when they're like first jumping off of the platform onto. I can understand that that idea that part. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the second part is when she is like floating in the mist and her hair is like like it's underwater. She enters that pod in a bun and goes up, and as like the mist fills, her bun falls. So why they didn't just keep her bun in and maybe have just like a few strands like off her forehead to show that it's like floating. I don't know why they made it so much more difficult on themselves. I don't know. That's my only problem with uh, with this movie is the CGI is a little <laughs> bit shoddy, but it is very clear that the money that they could have put in into making the CGI good went into the sound design. And I remember asking you if she, if um, uh, Amy Adams was nominated for any Oscars. Unfortunately, she was not. But this movie won an Oscar for sound design, right? Yeah, so it won for sound editing. So well-deserved. Totally. I mean, like, a- absolutely one of the coolest um, sounding movies. <laughs> I don't know what better way to put that. When you think about, you know, you're kind of having to invent all of this stuff you exactly. know what i mean exactly. uh and, yeah. and invent a new language invent all these new sounds for this thing that we have you know I, again they could have pulled from other aliens or pulled from from sounds on earth and i'm sure they did but just being able to kind of like start fresh and be like we don't have to we can kind of just invent everything that's real about these heptopods there's no you know what i mean yeah like aside yeah. from the book which i don't know I, I don't know what it what it says about the, the heptopods it's, um, Speaking of, I did find the book and it's on my nightstand right now and I do intend to read it. I am like in the middle of the stand right now, but that one's going to have to take a break because watching this movie made me want to read that specific story so bad. Um, oh, I gotcha. Yeah. I cannot wait to dive into it. That's that's very uh, cool. I can't wait to hear all about it. Yeah. So um, I've spoken about this before, but I think what – I guess I hadn't seen either of these things before this movie – and watching this movie again and kind of being pulled back into these two things uh, made me appreciate it even more. As, uh, specifically the soundtrack, um, it reminded me a lot of the OA. Yeah. And it reminded me a lot of Annihilation. Of course it did. Yeah. Did it Did it not? Like, yeah, I can it, still it hear. It totally did. I remember thinking about both of those at certain times in this movie. Exactly. And it's like, they're your two favorite things. So it's like. So it made me like I this would movie totally understand more. why you would love this. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe so I told you after this, I'm like, I don't remember being brought to tears when I saw this movie before. And like I was crying at the end of this movie. Yeah. And that's probably what it was. It's that violin. I love that. Um, I wrote down that I wish that I could see this for the first time again, because I when she said um, when she was talking about like, who was the guy that was being rolled off uh, in the in the medical gurney thing. Uh-huh. And he was like, you know, a lot of people just can't handle this they can't really handle what's happening and i remember in that moment i was like if i would put myself in that situation i would be in that same position of being rolled off i don't think my mind would be able to handle that and it added to the stress of meeting these aliens for the first time Mm -hmm. but this time knowing what happens and knowing that these aliens are harmless and they want to help us i'm like oh she's fine like i know everything's going to be fine up there girl you're good so like i didn't get that like reaction this time Um, that's a really good point yeah the shot of when they're in the shell and it's just that white screen and then Abbott yeah. and Costello slowly approach. I mean, it yeah. is 
It is your heart uh, is racing the yeah. first time you see it. Like, I, I said this in the in take one, and I don't remember if I've taken it out or whatever. But it really does take your breath away. Like it mm-hmm. when they're up there, and there are these just unbelievably terrifyingly beautiful creatures. I mean, like they're terrifying at first, and then it it becomes like okay, they're like majestic almost. Mm-hmm. It really does just kind of make you step back and be like, "Whoa, what am I looking at?" You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like one yeah. of those things and you legitimately just like them you don't know if they're dangerous you don't know their intentions so it's like it's it's very much i think the the filmmakers did a great job of making you feel the same way that you're that the characters feel like the way you're supposed to feel with this but i like that was missing this time around because obviously i knew that these aliens were you know harmless i was like "Eh, they'll be fine um i got you yeah the one i love uh in the dream sequence i remember when she's waking up and she's talking to Ian about it's Ian right yeah and she's talking Ian Louise yeah Ian um and he's talking about like oh you know I hear that when you learn a different language it kind of alters the way that you're thinking and do you dream in these aliens in the language there was like a shot where it was uh Jeremy Renner from one angle and then it immediately switches to another and I don't think I realized that the first few times and if you still have it, you should like go back and see it because it is really jarring. I'm like, okay, that was weird. And I was like, oh, this is because it's the dream sequence. And I thought that was really, really cool and clever. I thought you were going to bring up, in my opinion, what I think is the worst part of this movie, which is – What is the worst part? The uh, It's completely unnecessary. And it was almost like – it feels like a studio note. Like, oh, she should be haunted by these things. Like when she dreams about the heptopod like in her bedroom. Yeah. It's completely unnecessary. It feels cheap to me. I don't know. I just, it's like, it doesn't need that. It doesn't need to be, they were trying to like throw in like a jump scare for the audience. And it's I'm like, I don't, I don't need that in this movie at all. I'm, I don't know. It didn't feel cheap to me, but I, I certainly respect that. I remember like every time I've seen this movie, I'm like, ugh. <laughs> it really like that one little part just bugs me. That's fair. That's fair. A couple things I want to point out. We were wrong about the the na 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 song or whatever showing like when you first see it. That, that's another really good piece of music. Um, oh yeah, that plays them. But it's during when Ian is narrating the kind of montage about what they do and don't know about the heptopods, mm-hmm. and then it plays at the very end, uh, like during the credits, which is why it was in my head when we started this. <laughs> Funny though, how it kind of stuck in your mind as one of the more profound moments and. Uh... I, that's interesting to me. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just I think that that piece of music is really, um, it's just interesting. It's like so mm-hmm. strange, but uh, it always that's, gets. That's me. something I'm gonna write down and look into. I want to know the decision making behind the soundtrack and the sound design too, because yeah, clearly that's a very big part of the movie. So mm-hmm. shout out to Johan Johansson. That's that's <laughs> the coolest name ever. Yeah, rest in peace for sure. Um, so something that has always gotten me because I, you know, I talked about the fact that this movie doesn't really have any action in it. Um, aside from maybe that, that one explosion, but that's barely anything. Um, but it's not short on spectacle. And that is directly because of Denis Villeneuve's directing and their cinematographer. And his name is Bradford Young. Mm -hmm. And not only did he get an, uh, an Oscar nomination for best cinematography, he's the first African American to ever be nominated in that category, which I thought was absolutely awesome. Yikes. (laughs) 
I mean, like it, you know, it's it's awesome <laughs> that he was uh, the first. It's crazy oh, yeah. that in 2017, that's when. It, yeah, it blows me away that that had never happened before. But it's great that that's, he's you know the first one. He totally deserved yeah. it. Yeah, I want to clarify that. That's why I said yikes. Yeah. that it took us this long, and not that an African American was not nominated. It's tragic amazing, that it feels like it there is. Are almost every year there's like a oh this is the first person to ever get this or you know what I mean this is the fir- you know what I mean like and it's it's always some sort of minority group yeah getting yeah. finally getting there and it and it's great it's great progress but it sucks that it's taking it, so long you know i completely agree and is it true that this year there are no women i know the um the oscar nominations came out is it true that there are no women directors up for nominations this year nope or it yeah. is true yeah that sucks it's a yeah it's a travesty Oh, okay. One other thing I wanted to say is that this to me feels like it has a twist. It kind of has like two twists. I mean, it's more, they're more like, there's one that's kind of a twist and one that's more of like a reveal. The reveal is that, you know, they're, they're here to teach us a language. It's not going to like when you actually find out why the aliens Mm -hmm. are here. But the twist is that these flashbacks that we've been seeing this entire time are flash forwards. Flash forwards. And um, I'm not. I'm not equating these two movies. I'm not saying one's better than the other. You guys can, you know, have your opinions. But it feels like, and I think this is also speaks to your comment about how watching this movie the first time was better than watching it a couple times later or whatever. Not that it's worse, but okay. I'm sorry. Let me solidify my point. Okay. (laughs) This kind of feels to me like The Sixth Sense. Now, the Sixth Sense is like the most spoiled movie, not 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 thematically or anything. Uh, it's, it's like the most spoiled movie when it comes to the twist, other than like uh, freaking Empire Strikes Back or yeah. something. You know yeah. what I mean? But the twist in that completely changes the way you look at the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And when you rewatch it, it's almost like, why? How the hell did I not see that coming? Like, how the <laughs> hell was that not so obvious? And I'm not equate again. I'm not equating the twists. I'm not. I'm just making. They feel similar because this movie, watching it on multiple viewings, I'm like, oh wow, I'm dumb. Why didn't I see that coming? Like before, before we ever find out that she can like see the future or that she's envisioning this this daughter or whatever, she has a vision of that pot shooting out of the the shell. Yeah. And then yeah. she walks out there and it happens and it's like, okay. Right, right. So I actually I thought a lot about this. Um and knowing the sort of twist or the reveal uh going into this movie and sort of analyzing it from the beginning, it made me wonder because she I know you've said in the past um that a good twist is something that you are able what is that thing you say about like twists? You have to be able to um, okay, so I, in my opinion, a, a, a twist at the end needs to change the way that you look at the entire movie, and it's something that you should be able to plot back to the beginning, where it's like right. it's not something that just completely came out of nowhere that you could have never seen coming. Right, right. But because of that, uh, in this particular movie, I feel almost like kind of stupid that I didn't see well, it coming, you know? Here's the thing. I, so I think because I think it is such a well-crafted twist. Yeah. And I think um, obviously the filmmakers did a great job of making you believe that it was 
Um, it was something that happened in the past. And it made me wonder, it's like they very clearly intentionally made Amy Adams' character sort of this sort of sad, quiet character in the beginning. And it made me wonder, like, what happened? Like, if if it wasn't the death of her daughter that made her this sad kind of unexpressive woman in the very beginning, what happened before these vision like what happened before this movie started that kind of made her this sullen I don't know that she's seen I think she's just like a normal I don't know well, I, I think I think because the like the first time you get to know her you see her daughter die it kind of colors your perception of this woman she seems like she may be in mourning but I also could think that you could recontextualize if you take that out you could just see her as just being like a you know, a very calm, she's in language, see, she's an interpreter, she's very about logic, and I, and I think that plays into, okay, you, you you go ahead why you disagree, because I have a point about her that I want to talk about. You go ahead. I just think that, like, it, I think it was very clearly, uh, it was something that was intentional to throw you off. So yeah, you probably. you immediately think that, like, oh, she's, she's clearly struggling with something. Oh, we're seeing these flashbacks. She just lost her daughter, and now we're watching her proceed with her life. Like, I think that was made – that was put there to to enhance the twist and make it a harder punch when we find out that it was – But a a good twist also, like, you know, now that we know that she didn't lose her daughter prior, we still have to be able to go back and her actions and motivations have to make sense. And I think they do. Like, I would just believe that she's just kind of a a calm, quieter lady. That's my point, I guess. So I guess then my point is having watched it, like I just watched it, but this time I knew the twist. I knew yeah. the things. So I was looking for things and it still came off to me. Like she was this sort of sad. She did gotcha. seem sad. She did seem like a sad woman. And it made me wonder like what happened before this movie started. So you think and that might be just be like a negative, something that doesn't work for you in the movie. Maybe it was. That's okay. I mean, like, yes, but I understand why they did that maybe yeah. they could have toned it back just a little bit um i don't know because even yeah just her demeanor and everything just made it made it seem like she had some struggles in her past and if they really wanted to make it accurate i guess maybe they i don't know maybe she is just a sad woman i don't know but um that was just an interesting point that i totally agree totally agree um something that i will say is that about her in particular is that there is a cliche about a single woman, not not like that, she, not her marital status, but one woman um, working in a group of guys and having to be the troublemaker or the one that kind of has to stand out and be and, and, and it's just it's like a commentary that like feels to a lot of people that women just can't be part of the team. And that's mm. aggravating yeah. and uh, because women can be part of teams. Women are part of teams all over the place. I mean in real life all the time. Counterpoint, and, women should be on the team. 
Well, what? Okay, but I guess what I'm saying is that that there are there are women who that are actually on teams, and that a lot of movies are not accurate representations of those women on teams. They have to come in and be the ones that are rocking the boat, and and a bunch of guys are uh, find her problematic and all that kind of stuff. In this movie, there are men that I think would fall into the category of men who would have a problem with her directly, like because she's a strong woman. But she doesn't – her character, she's such a quiet strength and she's not – it feels very different from like Emily Blunt in Sicario, also by (laughs) Tony Villeneuve, where she is not as good at being part of – the team in my opinion um i mean she's still an amazing character and like strong women a lot of men can't handle strong women and that's a that is a problem in itself but i think right. she works beautifully with this team effort and i think that that has a lot to do with a beautiful script and uh, a beautiful performance by amy adams who mm-hmm. i don't think has ever turned in anything bad well she's I been think, in bad stuff and I absolutely love every every performance she's ever handed in. So like what? Before I continue, I want to know what you think Amy Adams was or what Amy Adams movie was not good. She's Lois Lane and I absolutely hate um, uh Man of Steel and Batman vs Superman. I forgot about that. That's right. Yeah. But she's um, fucking incredible in both of them. She is. She is. Uh, and she's in a lot of other stuff that I like I never got into. What's the What's the miniseries that um, oh, uh, Flynn wrote? Chopper. Yeah, I never. I thought that was so boring, but I thought she was fantastic. <laughs> I really did. I mean, like, I know that there are people out there that like that that uh, that series or whatever. I didn't even make it to the end because I was like, "Oh, this is boring." Um, I before I could finish, the twist got uh, spoiled for me, unfortunately. But um, oh, really? Okay, I don't. Yeah. I I'm not even close to that yet, so I'm not even <laughs> sure what had. I don't even remember exactly what happened. Um, yeah. Um, so going back to your discussion about, uh, like, I guess women being in a more male driven group, I think yeah. it goes right back to the conversation about how humanity like would not survive if something like this happened. I think it is not only, I, I think it's to me, I saw this as more of a comment on like the stubbornness of man. And, uh, I feel like if every one of the countries that was participating had an Amy Adams character, like, things would be a lot different. Like this movie would be so much different. And I think being in a male driven world is, I don't know, this is certainly a comment on it. And I don't really see this as far from reality. No, I mean, well, I think that, you know, the far fetched part of reality is that it worked. I mean, she essentially had to be given a superpower and then steal an official's phone and then be held at gunpoint to save the day. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So what does that say about us? Exactly. Yeah. We are not, (laughs) this is fiction, but uh, it's the ideal situation. And like so many uh, huge measures had to be like in place for it to happen. So totally that sucks. (laughs) But, um, but yes, I, I, I love your point. I'm glad you did. That makes me happy. Um, okay, just uh, unless you have anything else to say, I just want to end no. on uh, the fact. Okay, so this guy named Eric Heiser wrote the script, right? Uh, the screenplay, mm-hmm. and so uh, he did adapt that that book that you're going to read. Yes. Should we should we say what the name of it is? Because I don't feel like we've said uh, that. <laughs> give me just a second. Okay, I, cool. I gotta grab it. So I know the short story is. Oh, no. 
Yeah. Okay. So the book is called Stories of Your Life and Others. And the story of your life short story that is in this is the one that was made into a rival. Oh, okay. Cool, cool, cool. Who's it by? Uh, Ted Chiang. Good deal. Good deal. Yeah. Okay. So Eric Heiser adapted that book and he wrote an amazing script. This movie has a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. It is you know, very widely celebrated. It is hailed as a, a very, very well-regarded science fiction film. And it seems so out of the blue because Eric Heiserer wrote A Nightmare on Elm Street, not the original, <laughs> but the remake, the 2010 <laughs> remake. He uh-huh. wrote Final Destination 5, which I attend, uh. like I contend, uh, is a is a shining point in that series. But it's just <laughs> not on the same you know what I mean? We're just playing a different ball game, in my yeah, opinion. Wow, I didn't know that. He wrote the thing. Um, Is that like the remake? The yeah, the Mary Elizabeth Winstead one. I still need to watch that. He wrote uh, Lights Out, oh, which okay. is uh, the David David F. Sandberg movie, um, the YouTube one. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> he wrote Bird Box. Ugh. Yeah, so it's like, what are you, I mean, I don't, and Bird Box uh, was after the fact, um, obviously yeah. after he wrote Arrival, I don't know, and like, this is just like a, a high point in a otherwise, I mean, like, he, you know, he's a working, or working writer, and I like a lot of these movies, but it's just mm. like, you know what I mean? It's just, he's playing on a different level. Yeah, um, it does seem like it doesn't fit, you're right, you're right. So uh, it makes me wonder how... You know, if there are other writers that came in and gave him a boost or what, we'll see. Uh, this movie's powerful. I can't imagine that too many people dislike this. Yeah, or or too many people that went in again with an open mind and that don't have to have action and uh, fights and 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 people running away and stuff like that in your science fiction movie or your alien invasion movie. Mm-hmm. I can imagine people who came in without all of that baggage. Really liked it as well. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, I totally have. I had another point and I completely forgot. I don't know. Like that quick, I forgot my second point. Take three. So you said that wasn't Sasha. No. I Is that a neighbor dog? I don't have any idea. But she's, he or she is like either really pissed off or in heat or something. <laughs> we'll see. It's died down now. So I've not heard this dog before this sounded like a brand new dog and it sounded right in your backyard yeah which is that's why i thought it was weird. sasha sasha's my dog and yeah i would not put it past her to try to ruin this episode but <laughs> i have a ton of research this kind of brought me back to annihilation and interstellar days there's a lot of philosophical stuff that goes into this movie so i have i have quite a bit this time oh i'm glad hold on just a second I forgot the part of my notes I took when I finished reading the book yesterday. Oh, look at you. Big reader. Or the short story in the book. And I had to grab my book and get my notes. Do you want to start with that? I can start with like how the book related to the movie and how it was different. Yeah. Is that a good starting point or did you have anything else? No, no, not at all. Go ahead. Yeah, you do that. I do just want to preface the fact that yes, there is a dog outside who's trying to ruin this episode and um, my roommate just got in the shower so probably can hear that as well i'm sorry i'm going to try to mask out all of these things in editing but we'll see 
Uh, so the book was interesting. I think I should have probably read it first before I saw the movie. The book came out in 1999, so it is a little bit... <laughs> to say 1999 is old is... Uh, it hurts me to say that, but uh, I, will, I will drink. say... <laughs> what? That book is old enough to drink. It is. It is indeed. So it, there's a very large separation between you know the book and the movie. It was a lot less dangerous it was a lot less it seemed much more lighthearted than the movie was it was less about trying to figure out these aliens and more about oh these aliens landed on earth let's just kind of talk to them and it was much more about Luis learning the language and her slow discovery into being able to tell the future and learn this language and there wasn't really any offer of a weapon it was just these aliens came down they said, hi, we learned the language, and they're like, all right, we're out, and they just kind of left. So there was less of a, a an end goal in that respect. Uh, the more literal stuff, there were over 100 aliens, and there were like nine total in the United States, so there were way more. I think the way they set it up was uh, there were spaceships that were like orbiting Earth, and they sent down these like mirrors. They called them looking glasses, and they sent down these mirrors, and that was their way of communicating with, with us. The aliens Luis named Flapper and Raspberry. I read that. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. yeah I. They didn't really explain why, but uh, the daughter, instead of dying of, uh, I guess I would assume, cancer, which is what happened in the movie. Rare disease is what I think she says. Like a really yeah. rare, unstoppable disease. Yeah. Uh, she dies in a mountain climbing accident in, in this book. And she's like 25. I think she's much, much older than what she was in the movie. That's something I want to talk to you about I, if if it comes now or if you want to finish your points and then we can come back to it. That's totally fine. Your call. No, go for it. What's up? Do you still find out at the end of the story that these were all like flash forwards and flashbacks or is that something that was created in the movie? So, no. So in the very beginning, she talks in a way that is sort of like when you are this age, you will do this and this and this. So I think if I hadn't seen the movie and hadn't known that she sort of learned the ability mm -hmm. to tell the future and to read the future, I would have been probably confused. But they do kind of do it in a way where there are she she does bring back flashbacks and things in the story remind her of certain things about her daughter. But she speaks in the future tense. She says things like, you will, you will do this, you will do this, uh, as if she's maybe writing a letter or a memoir to her later on. That's interesting. I sort of wonder what what is the book trying to say because a freak accident is very different from a unstoppable disease. Like I think Louise makes the decision in the movie to take the time that she knows that she will have with her daughter no matter how fleeting and enjoy every moment of it. Right. Whereas this is like just don't ever go mountain climbing. Like what what are we trying so, to say here? This my next point was this book does an amazing job of meshing and mending together physics and language, like the science of both of those things, and also philosophy. Like it, it, it might have it might not have been the most exciting book, but it did bring up a lot of information and interesting facts about physics and philosophy and language. One of those being uh, it mentions the Book of Ages. And the Book of Ages, I don't know if that's an actual thing or if it's just something that was brought up in the book, but it's this idea that if you had in front of you a book 
that outlined every single thing that happened from the beginning of time to the end of time. It was just this, this massive book that had all the information you could ever know about the past and the present and the future. You would be able to know everything. And it's basically an exploration of free will. It's you can't have free will and knowledge of the future. Does that make sense? Like if you knew about the future, you would have the ability to change it. And therefore the book would be different. Like you, yeah. so it sort of explores that. And it's, it's said in a way that ignorance of the future is the price that we pay for free will. So like we have free will because we can't tell the future. Um, it sort of explores that in a sense. Um, and it goes through, like uh, light scenarios and how light bends and how that's related. And it's, it's actually, it's very interesting. And maybe when we're in a less uh, uh, tight setting with time, I could like actually show you the diagrams that it brings up in the book. Cause it's, it's actually very fascinating. Some of the, some of the things that it brings up. Oh, cool. Well, that's really, um, that is really interesting. Yeah, so, yeah. so there's a, it's an aspect of like inevitability, like it would happen Pretty much, yeah. Ultimately, yeah. regardless. Okay. Yeah. And I'll bring this up later in my research, but I did realize that I had bought this movie on iTunes, and uh, I was able to look through some of like the extras and the behind-the-scenes stuff, and they actually brought the author, Ted Chang, on to say some stuff about the book. And he was like, basically, I wanted uh, a way for this woman to be able to tell the future. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know if it was drugs or if it was you know some other means – and then something sparked his inspiration. He was like, oh, maybe it's aliens. Maybe it's their way of language. And that was sort of the base of the novel. And the whole theme of this story in general, both the book and the movie, is if you knew the future, would you change anything? And, and that's what comes down at the very – I mean, that's the question that she asks Ian. Exactly. And it's sort of like uh, if – if you had the ability to love and knew that you would lose it, would you still, would you still uh, chase after that? Yeah. So that's like the whole theme. That's the whole uh, premise revolving both the book and the movie. I think um, the movie did a really good job of uh, adapting it too. And you said it was only about fifty pages. Yeah, it was about fifty pages. And, and, it's, and what's it's, it called? Um, Stories of your life. Stories of your life. Okay, I just want yeah, to tell everybody yeah. it's a book called Stories of Your Life, but there are other stories. Yeah, it's a short story in a short story collection gotcha. by Ted Chiang. Ted Chiang, and, yeah. Yep, and uh, it's it's way different than – it. like the core concepts are the same, but it's way, way different from the movie. Um, it, there doesn't really seem to be any sort of emergency happening in the book. It's just sort of like, oh, these aliens are here. Let's kind of – let's talk to them. Um, and I think one of the funniest parts was apparently the heptopod spoken language, like the the whatever – they're using to that people could audibly hear yeah was able to be reproduced so <laughs> they said that um that when louise first encounters them and they make a sound she tried to mimic that sound back to them um, and i just can't see that happening in the movie like the way that the sound design was for these aliens in the movie yeah it just didn't seem possible so that aspect was kind of silly but um i don't know it was it was an interesting read um that's yeah that's all i can say about it well good that's i'm glad you enjoyed it and i'm glad that you you read it and have like another layer of appreciation for this movie, I guess. Yeah. 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 Thanks. What did, uh, did you have anything you wanted to share? Nope. Okay. Not a thing. I can keep going.
I, I have tons. I can I'm just keep going. <laughs> well, I mean, like if you have tons, you certainly can keep going. But I mean, let's um, I do have. Let's go into some of your stuff. Okay. I typically start this way. Uh, most take threes. I to talk about you know wh- whether it did good or not financially. And I did say earlier in one of these takes that I I think I do remember it at least doing good financially. I don't know if I cut that out or not. But um, on a budget of forty seven million dollars, it actually made two hundred and three million dollars. Excellent. So this was really Denis Villeneuve's like big step up. When it came to like, okay, we can give him big projects. I think he is still riding the coattails of Arrival. I mean, it's only, you know, a couple movies later, but like with Dune, I think he would not have gotten Dune and he almost certainly wouldn't have gotten Blade Runner without this movie proving that he can do. I mean, honestly, he's one of a few directors, I think, that seem to be able to work outside of an established IP, even though I know this is a short story, but like, Nobody has any. Nobody had any idea what it was. Um, mm. Like Nolan can do it. I feel like Sam Mendes uh, can do it and make these big spectacles that that have a fan base, but that are not uh, superhero. I mean, again, not yeah. not to say anything wrong about superhero movies, but they're not like they're original properties. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's interesting. In one of the uh, interviews that I saw on the extras, uh, he had just come off of. What was his last movie? Sicario? Sicario, yeah. And then the one before that was Prisoners. And he said that this was sort of his first take on a sci-fi movie. And he said that it humbled him because of how difficult it is. And listening to him say that, I hadn't registered that he is he had done Blade Runner and is now doing Dune, which are both, I would consider, sci-fi yeah. stories. So it's it's interesting how how that how this movie, I guess, affected his trajectory after. Definitely. He leveled up as a as a creator and as a filmmaker. I watched an interview with the production designer and he said that they had been kind of working on this since before that they before they shot Sicario. So this has been something that, you know, he had worked on for a while. Yeah. Um, and it, it definitely comes across like something that was not taken lightly. This movie, even though it is an adaptation, what it does say, and now now that I know it's kind of independently from the book even. Like it asks a lot of introspective questions, uh, and it doesn't. It's not preachy. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is? It's not. It's not uh, like in your face. It's very subtle with its mm-hmm. themes. Uh, I don't really have like that big of an interest in Dune, um, but just seeing how he took an approach to something that, like, probably in a, the hands of another filmmaker, might have played on more tropes and cliches and things like that for him to be able to successfully navigate his way through this sort of minefield that is bad (laughs) sci-fi and to come out the other side with a movie can i i mean i think really i think people will be studying this film like i miss these kind of movies like this is um, this feels like home to me yeah yeah So I have sort of a side story that I want to tell that relates back to this, which is like incredibly interesting to me that all this sort of came full circle. It's very on brand for this movie. But um, I was at work. I work at an escape room, which is so fun. If you haven't done one, go do one. They're amazing. One of my coworkers was talking about how uh, I think so we were assigned to come up with like a portable game. If you don't know how escape rooms work, basically uh, you got to solve like puzzles and, and riddles and stuff like that. 
and um, we were trying to think of a game that would work for children. And someone had brought up the idea of, oh, it needs to be colorful, obviously. And one of my coworkers was like, actually, kids really aren't the best at colors, believe it or not. Like that's that's really not one of their strong suits, which is surprising, um, at least in my opinion. He went on to say that colors really aren't perceived until there's meaning associated with them. And he described a scenario, I think I had to look this up. It was around 2000 BC. People were literally colorblind to the color blue because there was nothing really in nature that was inherently a vibrant blue. Um, there were studies looking back to ancient texts and like Homer's Odyssey, and there is zero mention of the word or the color blue. And it wasn't until the Egyptians started making dyes and pigments of different blues that the color was more easily recognizable and spread to the modern world. When I first heard this, I sort of thought that like people could see the sky, obviously they could see it as blue, um, but because there were so few things to compare it to, they couldn't classify it as its own separate color. So it's like the equivalent of maybe us seeing something as pink for the first time and describing it as light red because it's the only thing we have reference for. Gotcha. It's because we have reference for red, but we don't have reference for pink, so we associate it as a light red kind of thing. But this wasn't the case. They actually, like, they didn't see blue. Um, there have been several scientific studies, and I'll cite this in the notes. I read a really awesome article that indicates they were actually colorblind to the color. Like, they literally did not see the color blue. There's a study done in 2006 uh, by a scientist named Jules uh, Davidoff, and he worked with a tribe named the Himba tribe in Namibia. In their language, there's no distinction between green and blue. They're the same thing in their language. So to test this, they showed them this series of squares uh, where maybe nine squares were green and one was blue. And to us, like English speakers, there's a very easy distinction between the blue square and the green squares. And I'll you should check it out. I'll show you the link because like once you see the graphic, you're obviously like, oh yeah, the blue one is is the blue square. But they couldn't. They could not distinguish the blue square from the green square, or if they did, it was very, very difficult. Like this tribe could not point out which square was the different one in this setup. The Himba tribe has tons more words for green than we do. So to reverse this experiment, they showed the same series of squares, but instead of a blue square, they had another green square that was maybe like one shade off and the Himba tribe could find it right away. So, and I even looked at the graphic, I could barely find it. Like it's, it's, it's incredible how language shapes. Like once we finally have words or uh, if we have descriptors of certain colors and stuff, like we re literally cannot perceive them unless it's sort of given meaning in language. And to me, that was fascinating. That is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, that link is in the is in the description. I highly recommend you check it out. And once you see these graphics, your your mind will be blown. It's like it's so obvious to us that you know there's a, a blue and a green square difference. But like, I don't know. It's just it's 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 super super cool. So totally, that's that, yeah. that is really interesting. Okay, so I thought this was fun. I have a question, and I don't mean to because I think I I have a feeling that you won't know the answer to it, or at least your answer will be no. Um, okay. But it's just for to prove my point. Uh, do you have any idea who Abbott and Costello are? Do you really know anything about them? Okay, so I will say before watching this movie, 
if you had said the name Abbott, I could have told you and Costello. If you had asked me who they were, I wouldn't be able to tell you, but I do know who they are now after doing some research. So yes and no, but like if you had asked me that question before this movie, I, I would not have been able to tell you. Yeah. Let me first start out by making the point that in Italy, in the Italian version of this movie, apparently Abbott and Costello are not iconic in Italy, so their names were changed to Tom and Jerry. <laughs> okay. And you know how in the movie they are looking for some sort of rhyme or reason to where the different ships landed? Yes, yes. Their reasoning was, uh, you know, one one theory Oh, is that that one band had played in each of those spots at one point? So it was Sheena Easton. Sheena Easton oh, okay. uh, had had like a successful album or a successful single or something like that in each of those I don't know spots. Either. Okay, well, she's not well known <laughs> either in, in mm-hmm. Italy, so they used Pink Floyd. Oh, geez, okay. <laughs> I think it's just interesting that there are, you know, different cultural interpretations of the film and how the names of these characters, it kind of leads you to think that it doesn't really mean anything, right? Like they were just named Abbott and Costello here because those are people we would know. And Tom and Jerry are people that the Italians would know. Right. But it turns out uh, a little bit more thought was put into it than it may seem to some people. So Abbott is the the alien on the left and uh, he's actually like in real life a little bit taller and skinnier than Costello and uh, (laughs) Costello is the shorter chubbier one and he's Mm -hmm. normally on the right and um, typically Costello and throughout this movie Costello talks more okay Costello is typically the the funny guy and Abbott is more of like the straight guy and let me explain like in a comedy duo there's normally someone who kind of like sets up the jokes and then there's someone who actually like carries through the jokes or (laughs) or uh, or someone who's like erratic and funny and then there's like the guy that it it gets bounced off of Uh, so this the first thing that comes to mind is Will and Grace. Is this like when I yeah. think comedy duo, I think Will and Jack. Yeah, you could say that. No, it's interesting. Yeah. I actually in some of the uh behind the scenes stuff they went over the designs of both of them and um, you know, one was skinnier and in the sound design, they actually tried to distinguish between the two. Like they made them obviously their their sounds were similar, but they they made an effort to make them sound different um a little bit different yeah they each kind of had their own personality which i thought was a great detail it's very cool um one other thing about abbott and costello they are probably best known at least for people looking back on it for this skit called who's on first oh yeah (laughs) it's essentially abbott is a uh like a baseball coach or something like that and and costello wants to to play baseball and he's like, Hey, uh, tell me the, tell me all the names of the players. So I'll know them when I, you know, when I get to to practice or whatever, I'll know all the players. And, um, it's called who's on first. So he names the first, second and third baseman. And he says, who's on first, what's on second. I don't know. Who's on third. And, uh, it's like a, the entire skit is a comedy of misinterpretation. Yeah. And yeah. so this whole movie is about interpretation. Oh, yeah. And I was like, that is really, really interesting. Yeah. Uh, 
it's 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 like I'll I'll include the video to the link. It's really funny. It's like something that you know, living in twenty twenty, being our age, we've heard this kind of. It's very like dad jokey. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. But you think these guys are from way back? You know what I mean? Yeah, I was gonna say we've got to link the video. It's got to be on YouTube somewhere. Oh, it is. I it like, is. I watched it a couple of times. <laughs> it is funny. I mean, it's it is. It funny. goes so far that like he's he's like, what do you write on the check? Who? Who, like who's, you know, like what is yeah. he, like uh, it's, I can't even, I can't, I can't do it, but it's really freaking funny. It is funny. But yeah, and I was so focused on like, oh yeah, that's such a good skit and I like trying to remember the lines and I didn't even put together that that was intentional about like the miscommunication and stuff. That's yeah. amazing. That's really, really cool. Well, good. I'm glad that you think so. I do. Think I'm glad so. I finally got that out. It'll probably sound like I delivered that really fluently because I'm going to edit it, but oh my God, that took me forever. It's, <laughs> it's like hard to get. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. You, you can go ahead. I think you did a great job. Um, just so some more philosophical stuff. Basically, as I said before, this entire film revolves around the idea of, uh, do you choose love even if it results in loss? And I just think that the way it's composed and revealed in this movie is just breathtaking. Uh, I especially love how like everything sort of wraps itself up in the end uh, where she leaves the pod. She's like kind of stunned, but now she knows and she asks Ian, she's like having known this knowledge. If you could see your whole life in front of you, would you change anything? And then the montage begins. And then Ian asks if she wants to make a baby and it's just this like hanging moment where everything comes together and she says, yes. So it's like this whole her whole uh, conflict of like, I know this is going to happen, but I love this human being so much, even though I've never even met her before. Do I want to go through this loss? And that yes is like, is just like so perfect. And I think that's where the book of ages that I was mentioning earlier kind of ties in together. Like she can see it anyway. She knows it's going to happen. So she kind of just has to let it happen. Um, I remember in college, I had a call. I, in college, I had a college professor. <laughs> I had a professor. Oh, wow. I don't, oh, me too, actually. I know, yeah. <laughs> I had a couple of them. <laughs> for the life of me, I can't remember what class he taught because I think he was my teacher for several classes. But he, I still remember, he was one of the smartest people I've ever met. And he mentioned something one day. I don't remember what the discussion was, but how the most important development to the human species in terms of like human survival and evolution and where we are today is the dropping of the larynx some 300,000 years ago. And other animals obviously have the ability and the anatomy to make like noises. Didn't you go to art college? What? Didn't you go to art college? That's I mean, yeah, but we had to take like gen eds and stuff. That's why. Oh, okay. Okay. So this is like, you know, okay. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. Okay. I'm stupid. Okay. Keep going. Sorry. I, and again, I, I wish it's I could like, remember where does which this class this was. <laughs> what class is this? Is this like going to your illustrator classes? Like what? No, okay. no. Um, but, uh, so like, uh, again, other animals, they have the anatomy to make noises. They have the ability to, you know, speak for lack of a better phrase, but humans are the only ones whose throat and mouth structure work together in a way that is so much more complex than like hoots and grunts, like uh, an article I read said are chimpanzee cousins. So when you're born, your larynx is so high up in your 
uh, nasal cavity, which allows you to eat and drink, obviously, and garble. <laughs> but as you grow up, the larynx drops. And I think in men, it drops twice in your life. And that's why men typically have a deeper voice. But this sort of complex ability to speak and make distinct sounds allows us to put meaning to objects and actions. And it created a means for us to communicate and portray emotions and connections. So this is where uh, around this time, this is where we first started seeing evidence of culture and art and music and religion and symbolism and that kind of thing. So um, like language is keystone to literally everything. We can attribute it to the development of everything that we have today. Um, and it really is like, it's the essential building block of, you know, civilization. Um, well, she says that and uh, she... Like Louise says that in, in her book. Remember, Ian reads it and he's like, Yeah, that's wrong. It's science. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's arguable that they would kind of work together. It's, it, it's hard to, to specifically pick one over the other just because I'd say maybe someone who is much better versed in both of those things could make the right. uh, distinction between those or, and maybe categorize one as a little bit more important, but like, it makes total sense. It's, it's it does, not something yeah. that I disagree with at all. And you could argue that like, I think, I think the point here is that, um, you know, the dinosaurs, you know, that's, you can like, that was science, but they didn't have language. They, they couldn't advance themselves. And, um, it was, it was the dropping of our larynx that, how do you know? <laughs> well, have evidence. you seen Lame before time? I have not. Well, yeah, I have, of course. Son of a, a long bitch. Time, <laughs> Are you serious? I feel like you told me that before. Have you not seen the Lamb Before Time movie? I, I have just just been so long ago. It's like ninety of them. Yeah. Oh well, I mean the first one. Obviously, I don't think I've seen all of them. But the first one's like really depressing. But like yeah. there are a couple of really good ones. Yeah. Maybe maybe I was maybe it's one of those ones that like I enjoy when I was a kid. <laughs> it's not so good. I feel like it'd be still pretty good now. So, I'm sorry. Go back to your dinosaurs point. I'm, <laughs> no, I'm just saying that like you know science I'm a saboteur. Science and evolution uh, created dinosaurs, but it was language that got us to where we are now. And, um, you know, heaven forbid there is some kind of meteor shower. Jesus created the dinosaurs. What? Jesus created the dinosaurs. But continue. <laughs> I feel like if there was a repeat of what happened to the dinosaurs, we would be so much more equipped to A, prepare for it, B, um see it coming yeah we have shelters i mean they didn't even have exactly. shelters yeah exactly so it's it really languages i feel way more oh well, yeah way more important in in the sense of like human beings and survival and stuff like that well here's the thing like science does it, you know inherently it, it controls everything we do just because we are biological entities however if we each existed in a vacuum Science would be the most important thing, but because we exist in society at whatever time, you know, right. the second you introduce a second person or a second anything into the equation, uh, language then becomes monumentally important because that's how we're able to work together. I mean, there are mm -hmm. what there's like four or five thousand people on Earth, and we all have to be able to to communicate with each other. Yeah. So. <laughs> I feel like that's the population of my hometown. What? Four or five thousand people? people. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Do you really not know approximately how many people are on the earth? 
three. Yeah, good job. You know what? I wrote this down. This this is not important at all, but I just was like, I forgot and I thought it was interesting. I just wrote down all the places where they land. <laughs> okay. It, it, this is really important, but I'll just get this out of the way. They landed in Australia, the Black Sea, China, Denmark, Japan, Pakistan, Siberia, Sierra Leone, Sudan, the UK, Venezuela, and Montana. Huh. But I do think it's interesting that they chose 12 because our time is all divisible by 12. And there's also a spiritual aspect to it because like of the 12 disciples and, and they are essentially coming to save us in a way. I mean, even though oh, wow. they are essentially giving us a tool so that we can help them later, mm-hmm. they are coming and unifying the world. Yeah. Uh, one thing I did want to say about your point, it's the point right before where you were talking about how, uh, the, you know, the decision of whether or not once you uh, face that loss or would you rather just never, you know, like that, that what's the cheesy phrase? Um, better to, better to, to have loved. loved and lost than to never have loved at all or some shit. Right, right. Right. So I think that that that's really like human of a character of, of a person in general um, to, to accept that there is a cap on everything. Nothing lasts forever. We are finite beings living in a finite existence. Mm -hmm. And what is interesting to me is that an alien in this movie or aliens kind of brought that out in people through, you know, uh, enabling an individual to project through time and, and experience time the way they do. It actually made them more human because Louise did understand that it is better to love, even though it, it, in the scheme of things, especially now that she can experience time the way she does so small, but that it's worth it because the love that she shared for this child Right, um, right, was so immense that that's mm-hmm. what was more important to her. And I, I don't know, I just that to me just feels very human and very enlightened in a sense that like I don't see characters in films, at least the ones that I've seen, reach such a state of enlightenment. You know, a lot of times movies will take you on a journey and at the end the character is better for the journey they went on, but it it almost feels as if... Uh, to this degree, you mean? Yeah, Louise yeah. has never... Like Louise is one of the more, not just because she has this new ability, but just because uh, to make a decision like that feels like at the height of human and at the height of enlightenment. And it's really interesting to say that this came about because some aliens came to Earth and taught this woman, (laughs) you know, not to say that she didn't have it in her, but like, I don't know, they brought it out. You know, the, the end of this movie is when she makes this this decision is and it's within her. And I think that that is like, I don't know. It's remarkable. It is. I agree. It's unlike anything that I can think of. And if anybody I'm like welcoming you, please give me more of this. If anybody knows of stories like this, where it is like a, a lesson on humanity above all else, it, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. It's a great point. Thank you. I didn't even write it down. I was just thinking about that. <laughs> All right, you can go ahead if you want to. I feel like I went twice. <laughs> no, you're okay. Uh, so I have kind of two more big chunks. Um, the first is I just want to kind of summarize some of the fun extras that I saw in the uh, like the bonus footage kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you recall my discussion in, I think it was the Annihilation episode, where um, I hated when 
especially in cinema, people create aliens that are so humanistic in form. Uh, yeah, was it was it uh so okay, I think we've had this discussion a couple of times because I also think that you thought it was weird that Gamora and Thanos were humanoid in I Infinity think- War. I think that was my example because I was sort of like the biggest culprit of this is Marvel because a lot of these aliens look, they they have two arms, they have two legs, they have two eyes and a nose. But you understand why. I mean, I I feel like we... No, yeah, we we discussed why. It's it's sort of hard to digest. Uh, I think what I said was it's hard to um, sort of, I feel like it would make people uncomfortable to see Star-Lord fall in love with someone who's maybe not as humanoid. Yeah. It makes sense, but um, one of the... Oh, who was it? I think it was one of the producers. They said, uh, quote, I can't believe that our alien craft and aliens look literally nothing like anything we've ever seen before. That is nearly impossible. And I just loved that he said that because in that moment, I connected so deeply with that statement. Yeah. Um, it, it was sort of, it pulled me back to annihilation when I said, I'm sure several times that it literally reinvented the wheel for me, uh, that end alien scene in annihilation. Um, and I just, I respect the hell out of this movie for, you know, taking chances and, um, in the extras, they actually have a lot of guides and illustrations and stuff that, that, uh, sort of dissects the anatomy of these heptapods and it's really beautiful. Um, so if you get a chance, you should definitely check that out. These particular guys, uh, Abbott and Costello, and, you know, just the, the heptapods in general, what was so interesting about them is that they're horrifying looking. I mean, they are oh, yeah. monsters and yeah. they pretty, pretty much like two seconds into them being on screen. I was like, I just want to spend all the time with them. They're awesome. Yeah. They're awesome. Yeah. This kind of ties into a point that I bring up later, but uh, that's the way that this movie uses music Um is astounding. And the first, the, the, I guess when we rewatched this, that scene where it's like the helicopter view coming in to see the, uh, the spaceship. And then you have like those, like they're like clouds or like some kind of mist that's like coming down from the side. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's this like looming, like dark music. And I remember thinking like, why does this sound so dark and scary? Like, I know these things aren't scary. And I realized that it was like to set the mood. It's sort of no one, everyone is scared of these things. No one really knows what to expect. And it's only when uh, we do that montage where Jeremy Renner is talking and explaining like their findings and the heptapods and stuff that the music gets lighter and, and more, um, uh, just lighthearted and friendly. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's sort of where we fall in love with these aliens. And we realize that they're, you know, they're, they're peaceful and we're connecting with them just like the characters in the movie are. So yeah. certainly props to the soundtrack for, uh, for including that. Well, okay. It wasn't just the music that worked with the narrative of the story to comment on these creatures, because I saw that Bradford young, who is the first black guy to ever get, nominated for best cinematography we talked about yes in, in the previous one yeah um or in the previous take but what was really cool okay this is a production design and a cinematography thing the inside of the ship is like something that they actually built it's not a green screen they actually have at the like where abbott and costello are it's just a big light panel it's not mm-hmm. it's not a green screen or anything it's not like i mean they are obviously cgi but it it is a big screen of a light and um 
I, Bradford Young use light and brightness for the shots with the aliens and then yes. darkness to fill the shots where there's just like solely humans and they're in the tents. Yep, yep. That was and, in my notes too, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. And it's like he's trying to visually point out that from the very beginning that these aliens are not the enemy but are coming here to enlighten us for lack of a better term. Like no, yeah. they're the ones trying to help and not hurt because they're the ones shedding light on the situation. Right. I feel like if the movie did have bad guys, it would be like Michael Stuhlbarg and, um, and Forrest Whitaker, those characters who again <laughs> are just acting in the interest of the, of America, but um, yeah, yeah. they are the, you know, the ones that are in direct opposition or not, maybe, maybe in slight opposition to what needs to be happening at the moment. Whereas in a typical movie, like the military chief would have been the heroes of the story, the heroes of the story of the aliens, like they're the ones mm -hmm. coming in and actually saving humanity. Right, right. And there's like, you know, the whole movie sets that up and it's this sort of yeah. road to discovery. Um, but yeah, you're right. Going back to the lighting thing that was um, like all of the human shots are like hidden in these low light scenarios. There's the house full of windows on an overcast day. There's that dark, like semi empty classroom that she goes into. Yeah. Uh, there's the hospital scenes that are always so dark and like undersaturated. And then it's like just them in these dark military tents. So um, yeah, you're literally almost every, you know, human scene is, is very undersaturated and dark. Whereas, uh, in the, uh, in the pods, they are, they're light. So yeah, that was a, that was a great observation. I liked it. Well, good. I'm glad. Another thing that I thought was interesting about the decision, and this is actually, I think, made between Denny and uh, his production designer. I think the production designer came up with this is what I'm saying. Uh, and he said something like, and this is a guy who had worked with them, you know, on previous movies. They had come up with the idea that the the shells, um, their their ships or whatever, would be made of like rock and how they would look. They went through a bunch of different designs, but this is, you know, once they figured out the design, he came to Denny and was like, what if it didn't land? What if they don't land? And it's just sitting there hovering above the ground. Denny's like, well, how the hell are we going to get them up there? And he's like, with a fork, I mean, with a, with a scissor lift. Yeah. And I had this point too. I, this is something I researched as well. Oh, go, go. You say it. This was, so this was, I think this is probably part of like my favorite thing that I've ever researched ever in, in the history of take three. Um, there's a quote in an article that I found that I'll link in the description. Uh, Patrice Vermette, a uh, production designer was quoted in this article that I'll link in the description. Um, he said, Denny and I thought it would be interesting if the trip traveled like a gazillion number of miles outside the light years, the universe only to arrive on earth and not land to stay 28 feet above. <laughs> And then the humans would have to take that final step. Yep. And there's this like crudeness of man-made technology versus the more like smooth, sophisticated alien spacecraft. Um, and then with the contrast of this like clunky scissor lift is amazing to me. They're like, they're going to travel this immense distance and they're not going to land. Like they're just going to hover and they're going to make us take the next steps. It's, it is very interesting because what it really kind of feels like is I mean, when you think about it, it's 12 ships came into our atmosphere, but they did not invade Earth. They never right. even landed. They literally right. were like, if you want our help, if you want to actually come in and, and have what we want to trade you, 
then y'all are going to have to actually meet us halfway, not halfway, but, uh, you know, meet us one millionth of the way. Right, uh, right. And I don't I think that, again, leads back into the idea that's like these aliens, of course, they're aliens. So America, like uh, not Americans, uh, people on Earth are going to be freaking out and, and, and thinking that they're here for all these terrible reasons. And honestly, I've, I've read enough um, theories and stuff where people think, you know, if we ever did have an alien invasion, it probably would not be friendly. No, um, no, no, no. But uh, we'd be fucked. I, I think it, it's it's just like another courtesy of the aliens to be like, okay, we're, we're just floating here. We're not even like <laughs> landing on your earth. We're just floating. Not touching you. you know. <laughs> I just realized I, this long train of thought that just happened in my head. Abbott took this trip knowing it was a suicide mission. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If they can tell the future. And you can tell, uh, like, Costello got the fuck out of there. Abbott was like, I've got to deliver this last little and message. Even like, and then he knocked him back. Yeah. Yeah. That and um, I think what I was thinking of is like, oh, he knew the future. He knew that bomb was going to be there. Oh, that's right. He was, like, tapping on the, str- the screen trying to get them to, like. He's like, turn around. Look. Realize it. Oh, that makes it. I don't know why I missed the first few times I watched this movie. Missed that he died. I don't. I don't know how Abbott that is death me, process. Yeah, that's it, it. Makes it so much more sad. But it is. Um, it is very sad. The uh, the last little bit that I had that I found in the extras was the dream sequence that I mentioned briefly in take two. Uh, it started as an accident, and I know that you were not a fan of the dream sequence. I'm not sure if this will help or hurt. Turns out that it started as an accident. Um, they needed a scene where they could explain the Sapir Whorf hypothesis, which is that when you learn a new language, it sort of reconstructs the way you think of things. Um, and I think they had all this footage that they just kind of mashed together just so that they could try to like come up with something. And there were those the the two shots that I pointed out where it was this sort of like jarred cut uh, with Jeremy Renner. Yeah. Yeah, they saw that and they were like, "Oh, that's interesting." And um, that's sort of how it came about. They're like, "Oh, we could make this a dream, and we could, you know, bring up that." Um, oh, okay, okay. Kind of, yeah, we could bring up that idea, and at least it had a different point. Like I read about the Sapir Whorf um, hypothesis, and I, I I know that it's been disputed a lot, mm-hmm. but obviously this movie is like a science fiction story, so it it can yeah. it can operate on that belief independently from reality that doesn't matter and uh i think that my problem with when i read about that was like aside from her being able to look forward into time i didn't really see how that kind of was coming through aside from her just having these visions but that that actually makes sense because like looking forward through time obviously isn't real like that's not like a real thing that happens um, but it affecting your dreams, I don't know. Yep. Maybe that's more understandable. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I liked yep. it. That was a that's that's a, a very good point. Way to go, Jordan. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Eric Heiser, who wrote the movie, uh, who you know adapted the film, the one with the kind of shoddy track record before, and you know how I had talked about how. Um, he wrote a bunch of other movies that are just not on the caliber of this Oscar. Oh yeah, caliber movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the part where she goes and tells General Chang's hit uh, the um, his wife's, the, his wife's yeah his wife's dying words or whatever, 
Um, and it's it's not actually like stated in English in the movie. It might be stated in in Chinese. I'm not sure because I don't speak that language. Um, I never even thought. I never even thought to look up what those words were. Did I think you? it's actually yeah. I did. Okay, it's kind of interesting because he he just outright said it. He says it translates. I'm going to quote him. Okay, it says it translates as in war there are no winners, only widows. I'm like, that's beautiful and, wow. and haunting and scary too. But uh, Heiser previously explained on Reddit, he says, I worked so hard on the dialogue in Mandarin for Denis, spent weeks crafting the lines that he finally approved, and then that scoundrel goes and doesn't use subtitles in that scene. <laughs> I guess there's something to be said there uh, about the nature of language. And I love Denis, but he's also a mischievous fox. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny because they – they well, I guess you would have to, but they they subbed the uh, Abbott Constell- and Costello's yeah. bits when she was in the pod. That's really funny. <laughs> I just really thought I was like, that's really interesting, and and, and so is the the statement. I mean, the, the it's more interesting the fact that the context of how she gets it is certainly the thing that over overwhelmingly um, is the most important and. Uh, interesting thing in that scene is, you know, the fact that she's going through time to obtain these things. Yeah. Um, and that's not the first time war is brought up in that movie either. No, no, not at all. Yeah. It's like everybody loses when we're not united. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Final thing. There's this video essayist. I don't know if you, that's how you would say it, but, uh, it's a YouTuber named nerd writer and I will link the video below. It's very interesting. And I was just like, what do, what do you have to, to say about this? I was, was just interested in uh, learning a little bit more about this movie in regards to whatever they wanted to tell me. And uh, the Nerdwriter video brought up something. And, I, and I, again, I'll, I'll include it. I'm not going to go too deep into it. I just want to talk to you about this particular effect. First, I'll introduce it. Okay, it's called the Kuleshov effect. And it's a, a film editing effect. It's weird. Like, it exists throughout film it's not like this guy created it but he like demonstrated it mm-hmm. um it's a soviet filmmaker named lev kuleshov uh in the early 1900s so um it's a mental phenomenon which viewers derive more meaning from the interaction of two sequential shots than from a single shot in isolation uh so th- this is the way that he explained it and then I'll, I'll show you how hitchcock explained it as well and I'll, I'll put these all in the the notes or whatever for the for the episode so he used a shot of like a man just blank faced, kind of just like a blank expression of a man, and then cut to a, uh, a woman in a casket and then cut back to him. And the, you would think that the man looked sad. And then he would cut to a woman who's just laying out, like stretched out all sexy on this chair or a love seat or whatever. You switch back to the guy and now he suddenly looks maybe a little bit more like turned on, like he's filled with lust. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that it's the same shot. It's the same shot. The idea is that what means more is not a single shot. It's the relationship between shots. Okay, yeah. So um, Hitchcock did a, did a thing where it was his face, and he's like, there's this guy, and he's just standing there, and then he's this old man. He looks, and he smiles. It cuts to a woman with her child, and then it cuts back to him, and 
you know, you think, okay, well, he's a nice old man. He's happy that this woman is, you know, playing with her kid. But if you swap out the woman playing with the kid shot with a woman who's just kind of sprawled out, then him looking and then smiling at her, he's a pervert. Yeah. And so it's about the relationship between shots. Nerdwriter argues that the idea is, is not just between shots, but between sequences in the film. And, uh, that, the because of the fact that we, we we see this death of this daughter very early on, we have all of this evidence and all of this experience in film knowing that like, okay, well, she's dead. But because oh, you're playing yeah. around with the relationship between where th- certain things fall, the coolest shot effect kind of reaches new meaning almost because it's not mm-hmm. just between shots. Like honestly, pe- people describe it as a phenomenon. It seems more like, okay, that just happens all the time. Like, of course, the juxtaposition of multiple shots, uh, or even just two shots, changes the way we feel that, you know, rather than just having one particular shot. You know what I mean? Like the yeah. juxtaposition gives us a different um, a different understanding of what the filmmaker is trying to say. But what Nerdwriter said way better than I'm trying to say now is just that this film is able to kind of deceive us by utilizing that because these sequences played out in a certain way we think of them in one way and it's not exactly the truth you yeah. can you can use it to convey meaning but what's really cool is when a it. movie does it to deceive you yeah, yeah yeah it is a great twist element it's a great uh surprise strategy i think um it's cool really that cool. it can be boiled down to just uh Something so simple, you know, something that we like literally take for granted in probably the majority of, of competently made movies. It's um, just a clever way to play with context, really. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's awesome. Um, God, I feel like I've been talking a lot. I'm sorry. It's okay. I just have one last uh, little chunk. I read an article that was sort of like things that you missed. Um, but I, there were a few points that were very, very awesome. So uh, to sort of tie together the past, present, and future together aesthetically, uh, Vermette, who is the guy that we talked about earlier, he designed uh, Louise's settings for all three setting, like all three of the settings, which is her home, her classroom, and the spaceship, to all resemble one another. So if you think about her home, it's this dark space with this like these very open windows. Uh, her classroom is this like super big space with this uh, completely stark whiteboard uh, and then the window in the spaceship. So he kind of made them all very similar. And he mentioned for Luis, the idea of the chamber was pre-conveyed in her world. So it was something that was familiar to her. Maybe that explains why she was so comfortable taking off um, uh, her suit when she wanted to introduce them. I know that was more to like, you know, get them familiar with her, but just the fact that they were able to sort of wrap that up in, in a production sense was very interesting to me. I know in take one, I mentioned that the sort of, I, I wondered if the language and typography of the heptapods characters were fully fleshed out. Yeah. Um, and they absolutely were. I don't know why I doubted that for even a second, but they had graphic designers on, on the team that were, you know, responsible for creating these, uh, I think they called logographs. Yeah. Um, and, and they, they like had like a Bible. Yeah. Um, I, the graphics team literally delivered like a literal dictionary like a stack of papers that explained the entire language to denny which was 
incredible to me. Like I, if I could get my hands on that, I would, I would die happy. Yeah. Um, so they you try- would think that like a movie like that would have some sort of art component. Like I would love a, you know, a hardback book that had like yeah. the art and they do that for like so many movies, you know? Yeah, they do it. I, I would say mostly for, they do it mostly for like animated movies, which makes sense. But uh, there is on the extras, if you have this on iTunes or on DVD or something in the extras, there are like several sketches and concept ideas yeah. and storyboards and stuff. So it's pretty interesting. And I'm sure you could Google it too. What's Google? <laughs> Very funny. Uh, so they tried their best to incorporate circles into the scenes as much as possible because obviously they're a very heavy theme in this movie, uh, especially with the architecture. If you remember the scene in the hospital where she's sort of like walking down the hall, it's this like curved hallway. Uh, there's the museum slash theater space where she met with General Shang at the end, which was the uh, Plaza des A. If I'm saying that, you I that. that. I'm sure that's exactly how they pronounce it. It's the Plaz des Arts. Plaz des Arts. It's the. It, it's phonetically in English. It's Place des Arts, which is uh, in Montreal. It's this. It's but it's it's a round building. At the end of the day, that's what I'm trying to say. It's this round building. <laughs> they did that on purpose. Very um, cool. And the this this is so fascinating. The original plan was to also make the spaceships spherical. Uh, but Denny found an exoplanet that was egg-shaped. Oh, I've I looked, saw this. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. And I've looked into this. I I googled uh, egg-shaped exoplanet, uh-huh. and it was it's 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 a real thing. It's an egg-shaped planet, but I think it's so close to its sun that it's literally being like pulled into it. So it's like this warped planet. It's so so cool. That is wicked. Um, that is really cool. I agree. I agree. And. Uh, this sort of goes back to the discussion about annihilation and how, you know, uh, trying to create something that's never been seen before. Uh, Denny said that, uh, he said, we wanted to use a simple design for the spaceship because the story is not about aliens. It's a story about humans. And we didn't want to have any distractions. We wanted to stay away from the typical spaceship with windows and thrusts and little antennas and blinking lights. So that decision, I think, was so very important because yeah. really it, it was so it it was simple but it it wasn't at the cost of being spectacular like it was still this magnificent thing no matter how simple and simplistic and minimalistic the design was yeah um it didn't need all the bells and whistles it was sort of this organic structure and it was still fascinating but um not distracting in the way that uh, I, I don't want to say typical sci-fi is, but um, nope, typical sci-fi. You're right. <laughs> I, it's it's cool because um, something that I didn't write down, but I'm remembering now was uh, Denny and Bradford, uh, the director and cinematographer, talking about how they had kind of come up with something they coined as like dirty sci-fi, where yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, the idea that no, this was nothing really fantastical, that this could just really just happen like on a shitty Tuesday mm-hmm. uh, morning, that that it was really the way that most filmmakers would handle something like this. They wanted to go in the opposite direction right. and have it feel very realistic. And it really does. I mean, um, like that, that opening shot is like, it's mesmerizing because like, you know, it, you, I like go through a couple of different stages in my head. Cause like the, the, the viewer in me is like, whoa. 
And then, uh, like, the person who's interested in, like, the behind the scenes, like, the filmmaker in me is like, how the fuck did they do that? Like, that looks <laughs> so real. Like, yeah. what, you know? Yeah. Um, so I totally understand. And that that's something that, like, I think Denny brings to all of his movies, at least all the ones that I've seen, is this just very kind of gritty realism. Not that mm-hmm. he, like, deals with fantastical elements all the time, but it's like doesn't seem forced it's just kind of like very organic yeah this organic realism that's very good good job so have you seen the first blade runner yes what were your thoughts really scott directed it and um really scott is one of my favorite directors ever i don't i don't want to speak ill of him but he's not he doesn't have like a perfect track record you know what i mean (laughs) it's probably like one of the medium ones for me okay like i do not like it better than like alien so I asked because uh, doing all this research kind of made me want to watch the second Blade Runner. And I'd seen the Blade first. Blade Runner 2048. <laughs> yeah, 20, yeah, 2048. Uh, 2049, actually. And uh, it made me want to. I've, I've seen the first one, but it was for a class where we were studying existentialism. Uh, and it was just it was not the greatest movie watching experience. Uh, and I do want to watch it again. And I was curious to know if you'd ever do either of those movies or both of those movies for an episode in this podcast, or maybe yeah. even like a quick take. Anything look, sure. like legit, anything, uh, David Fincher, really Scott, Denny Villeneuve, Quentin Tarantino, um, Ryan Johnson, who else? Ryan, well, definitely Ryan Johnson, definitely Jordan Peele, definitely Ari Aster. Like yep. these are filmmakers where you will never have to argue with me. Like I, there's probably a lot more that I'm just not thinking of. Um, what is one that you would argue? Uh, someone who I think doesn't have like the greatest track record. Like here's the thing. Like I know Robert Zemeckis has done some incredible, credible, credible, incredible work, but I feel like the ones that you want to want to want to watch probably ones I don't want to watch. Like what? Like walking to Marwin and, uh, I don't know. Like why I would want to give... do Forrest Gump. I don't know why you give those movies such shit. I, he just is so into like making sure everything is so special effect heavy that I feel like it just kind of feels like that's his only, I don't know. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm, I mean, obviously he's a brilliant filmmaker, but I feel like he's fallen off. Tim Burton. Nope. No, thank oh, you. Yeah. Yeah. Good call. Good I'll call. do Batman returns for a Christmas movie. But <laughs> other than that, I am not. Interested. I mean, oh shit. Beetlejuice. Of course I do. Beetle. Yeah. Only certain. Yeah. Yeah. There are certain, certain filmmakers. My train of thought is just like all over the place. <laughs> we've just got trying a, to think of directors. I would, would argue against. Well, we've got a lot of bars recorded. So maybe we should. I we do want to say one last thing. Yeah. Um, go for it. Uh, I just wanted to shout out the gentleman over at the Opinionated's podcast. So that is the word opinionated with an S on the end of it. So it's the Opinionated's podcast. I remember trying to read that the first time and was like a opinionated's. I was just fuck? I was just gonna say it was like when you sent them to me, I was like opinionated's. I don't opinionated's at <laughs> it. But there yeah, are it makes three sense. opinionated gentlemen, opinionated. and they are smart and interesting. And I don't know, they I feel like they have like a a very natural kind of chemistry between the three of them. They're they've picked some really good movies, so they're relatively new at the time of this um, recording. Uh, they're on episode eleven, 
Um, but they also have a really, really cool Instagram just called Opinionateds. Um, mm. And I, I'll link those people below as well. Um, just really nice guys. Uh, well, I, I've spoken to Darren, who is who is really great, but they all seem like really good guys. Uh, just uh, like another movie podcast where people talk about interesting takes on movies. They, um, they did a Rise of Skywalker one. And uh, I really, I can appreciate that a lot. Um, I am a new fan for sure. And I hope that you guys will um, go over and check them out. Totally. All right. This was like probably longer than a whole episode should be. So <laughs> I had fun. Do you want to play a game now? Is... Oh, <laughs> no, God. Just kidding. Uh, now's not the time. <laughs> yeah. So um, getting back in the swing of things. Thank you guys so much for listening. <laughs> Shut up. You did. Oh my God. No, this is perfect. The whole episode came full circle. You said swing of things again. Swing of things. Oh my God. Oh, finger things. Oh my God. We, you know, had to take uh, a, <laughs> a break longer than I had wanted to. Um, it's okay. We're, we're recovering. Health comes first. I don't, I don't seem to be getting any better, but um, <laughs> I'm going to uh, continue making episodes if it kills us. So. Yeah. All right. Let's hope it doesn't get to that. But anyway, I will do a podcast with your corpse. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the 27th episode of Take Three, a movie podcast. If you want to listen to more episodes, you can find us at take3amp.com. That's take the number three amp.com. There are links to all of our social media and our store uh, for merch on that website. What really helps us is if you go on our iTunes and leave us a review. I'm pretty sure that's what Jordan told me to tell you guys. Yeah, something like that. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. I'll sing.